National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We've tackled quite a few shows on uh, on the national security ramifications of climate change, and I can tell you we'll definitely be doing a few more. Uh, the impacts of climate change are now happening around the world. Where climate change is happening the fastest is in the polar regions. The melting Arctic Ocean is opening up some very interesting geostrategic challenges, but it is also creating interesting opportunities for exploration, for maritime shipping, and a wide range of other possibilities. Uh, to discuss the significance of the Arctic region, we have with us today Ambassador Marie Ann Koninks. Uh, she's actually joining us from the coast of Belgium today. Uh, Ambassador Marie Ann Koninks is a senior associate fellow at the Egmont Institute, which is the Royal Institute for International Relations in Belgium. She's an honorary fellow of Wolfson College at Cambridge University as well. She's also a member of the Board of Directors of the International Polar Foundation, based in Belgium. She was the first EU ambassador for the Arctic, having been EU ambassador to Canada, where she extensively visited the Canadian Arctic, and also to Mexico. Her postings as Minister-Counselor at the EU delegations to the UN in New York and in Geneva provided her with extensive multilateral experience. She has been an EU official for 35 years. Ambassador Connick studied law at Ghent, Ghent University. Am I saying that correctly? Ghent University in Belgium? Correct. Okay. Correct. And did postgraduate studies in international and European law at Cambridge University in the UK and at the European University Center in, uh, in France. She has many published, uh, she's published uh, in many different publications, and, and her work can be found on her homepage www.marieannconnings.eu, and that's www.marieann, all one word, dash Connix, C O N I N S X dot E U. Ambassador Marie Anne Connix is Belgian. She currently resides in Germany and she's fluent in Dutch, French, English, German, and Spanish, as well as her neighbor, <laughs> native Belgian. Ambassador Marie Anne Connix, welcome to National Security This Week. You have an extraordinarily uh, impressive resume. It is an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you very much, John, and good morning to all listeners. So I'd like to start off by uh, learning a little bit more about the Egmont Institute. What, what, what can you tell our listeners about the Institute, the works that's done there, and how that work supports policy development? Thank you. Yes, the, the Egmont Institute is the Royal Institute for International Relations in Belgium, and it's in Belgium, in any case, very well known. It's an independent think tank that works very closely together with the Belgian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The Egmont Institute is ideally situated in Brussels, which is the heart of Europe and very close to headquarters of the European Union and NATO. And it conducts a lot of research, mainly on international topics, including extensive research related to the European Union and its policies. And to give you some examples regarding the European Union, it does research on the European Union and its strategic partners which includes the US. The US is a strategic partner of the European Union. It conducts research on EU economic affairs, on EU security and foreign policy, on European defense and NATO, on internal EU policies, 
which includes key issues like climate, energy, and migration. And only since recently, since I would say about one year, there is a new topic of research of the Egmont Institute, which is the Arctic. And why the Arctic? It's because the Belgian parliament adopted at the end of 2021 a resolution whereby they request the Belgian government to have a Belgian Arctic strategy. Mm. And then the Belgian Ministry of Foreign Affairs mandated the Egmont to elaborate one. And here I come into play. Then I was nominated senior associate fellow at the Egmont to focus on the Arctic. And meanwhile, we have a small but very dynamic team uh, with a lot of activities which are well reflected on, on our uh, EGMOD website. And just to mention one event which took place a few months ago, we had a meeting with Mike Sfraga. Mike Sfraga is the new US ambassador at large for the Arctic, because for us it's very important to, to work together. And finally, we will have a first draft of a Belgian Arctic policy ready probably before the summer. All right. Uh, so, Ambassador Connix, I, I mentioned in my opening introduction that you served as a European Union ambassador to Canada and also to Mexico, as well as being the first uh, EU ambassador uh, for the Arctic. I, I think most people understand the role of ambassadors in representing individual nations. Uh, but to have ambassadors representing a block of nations like the European Union, that seems sort of like a novel approach in diplomacy. I, I know it's a common thing, but I think for most people that that's kind of a new concept. Could you tell us a little bit more about how the European Union functions in the diplomatic arena? And, and you're, Bel you're Belgian. You, you represent the interests of yes. everyone in the EU when you served as an ambassador. Uh, how, how does all that work exactly, the, 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 the diplomatic engagement that the European Union does all around the world? Yeah, thank you very much for this question. I know that it's sometimes it gives the impression that it's very complicated. Now, how does an EU ambassador function? It's actually, I would say, rather easy to explain and, and to understand. Uh, everybody understands the function of an ambassador of an individual country. Uh, for example, the U.S. ambassador in Mexico, he represents the U.S. in Mexico. Now, the same is for an EU ambassador. When I was EU ambassador to Mexico, I represented the EU in Mexico. It means that I did not represent Belgium or I did not represent all other EU member states in Mexico. I represented the European Union as such uh, in Mexico. And what does this concretely mean? Um, I think I have to say a few words about the European Union uh, as such. The European Union is not a state, it's not a country, but it's also not a classical, it's not an international organization either. It's a supranational entity. And this might be a very complicated uh, notion, but it very simply means that um, in particular areas, the European Union has exclusive competences. This means that EU member states have transferred some of their competences to the level of the European Union. And a very well-known example is the exclusive competence of the European Union in the field of trade, agriculture and fisheries, which means that, for example, if the EU would conclude a trade agreement with the US, it's only the European Union can do this and negotiate it, and individual member states can no longer conclude a trade agreement with an individual country. And beside that, we have a lot of common policies 
which we exercise together with our member states. Also here, uh, we have common policies in all important areas like energy, transport, migration, security. And a prominent example also in the context of the Arctic is climate uh, policy. The European Union had decided by law that the European Union must become climate neutral by 2015. And that is an obligation, an obligatory target, which is decided at the level of the EU. And individual member states have to respect it, but they have some freedom to decide how are they going to reach to achieve this target. So another important, a very important task of an EU ambassador is to give visibility to what the European Union is and what its policies are and what the European Union does or not. My constant experience as EU ambassador has been that is widely unknown what the European Union is and, and where it stands uh, for. Uh, for example, the European Union uh, is uh, the biggest donor of development and humanitarian assistance um, in the world, but this is widely uh, unknown. Also, we have far-reaching cooperation agreements with strategic partners, like, for example, a transatlantic research alliance with the US and Canada on Arctic and maritime affairs. So this is only, I would say, widely unknown. And therefore, the issue of giving visibility what we do is key. So this is a nutshell, uh, John, what the European Union does and what an EU ambassador is or does. So I, I'd like to ask a follow-up question if I could. Uh, yeah. I, I served as naval attache at the U.S. Embassy in, in Helsinki, Finland, so I'm a little bit familiar with how the EU is structured and organized. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. I know that there's a, there's always kind of a push and pull that happens in individual sovereign nations who are members of yeah. the EU with their own yeah. uh, economic and uh, security interests in, in yeah. the broader EU environment. And I think, uh, you know, yeah. as, as an individual citizen of a country in the EU, yeah. serving as an ambassador for the broader EU, there's got to be a lot of different stakeholders that you're trying to uh, yeah. serve all yeah, at yeah, the same yeah, time, yeah. a, a yeah. highly complex challenge. Yeah, uh, I must say that I, I often get the question, for example, do you have a kind of uh, competition uh, with, <laughs> uh, with EU, with national uh, ambassador? It is a question I, I regularly get. And I must say that in practice, it worked extremely well. Uh, there is, uh, I would say, not a competition. Uh, we have complementary tasks. Um, there is a lot of cooperation and um, a lot of as I said, complementary tasks. To give you um, one example, the European um, Union has an exclusive competence of trade. It, it concludes a trade agreement, uh, let's say a trade agreement with Canada, which will allow, let's say, European products to enter Canada without any industrial goods, without any duty. Now, what is then the task of an ambassador of a national member state? Well, they mainly will have to use this instrument. For example, if Germany uh, wants to do trade promotion, trade promotion is not a competence of the European Union. So the German ambassador can then use the agreement negotiated and concluded by the EU, using it to make promotion, for example, to sell German cars uh, on the market in, in Canada. So there is a lot of complementary um, tasks. And I must say that as well, when I was ambassador 
in Mexico and in Canada, we had weekly um, meetings with the national ambassadors of the member states. So the, the cooperation uh, is extremely close in third countries. That makes good sense. Uh, now, to serve as the first EU ambassador for the Arctic, that, that must have been a bit of a, of a daunting assignment. Uh, what were your tasks in serving in that capacity? Uh, what, what kind of, a, of authority were, were you given uh, for negotiations on behalf of the European Union? And with, with whom did you negotiate on behalf of EU interests in the Arctic region? Thank you, John. I, I would say that also the task of an EU or an ambassador at large for the Arctic, that's a thematic ambassador. So the other ambassadors are more, you know, related to, uh, you represent uh, EU with a country. Um, it's very similar to the task of those ambassadors, which means that I represent as EU, I was the very first EU ambassador for the Arctic. I represented the European Union everywhere on Arctic matters, which is also defending the interest of the European Union regarding the Arctic. And a key task was to promote EU's Arctic uh, policy, which is also, I would say, mainly not known. So there were not ta many tasks, I would say, or no tasks related to really negotiating something. It was more uh, to give visibility what the European Union does and its activities that implement EU Arctic's uh, policy. And if you look at the EU Arctic policy, we have three key objectives, which you also easily will find back, for example, in the most recent US uh, Arctic policy. We had three, uh, we have three key objectives in our Arctic policy is to fight against climate change and to protect the fragile Arctic environment. It's promote sustainable development in the Arctic and promote international cooperation. And to this end, the European Union has an impressive number of programs and cooperation pro pro uh, projects to implement these objectives. Another example, uh, we have also one of the biggest research programs in the world regarding the Arctic. And it means that we're doing research, research in examining the causes of the warming up of the Arctic in order to contribute to finding solutions and to take decisions which are based on, uh, on knowledge-based um, policies. So all this, I would say, is a very similar to a task of a normal uh, uh, ambassador. But maybe one thing I would like to clarify, which is also not very clear, is that the European Union is in the Arctic, or the Arctic is in the European Union. And the reason is that parts of the territory of our EU member states in the high north are in the Arctic, uh, which means that the European Union is not an outsider. And you can compare this when I, for example, I meet uh, Senator Markowski from Alaska in public conferences. She always says that the US is an Arctic state because of Alaska. So I would say the European Union is an Arctic entity because we have parts of the territory of the member states in the Arctic. And finally, as an EU ambassador in, in the Arctic, um, I, uh, I uh, represented the European Union in important Arctic conferences and uh, also 
at the Arctic Council, where the European Union has a, a non-official de facto observer status. For our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is former European Union Ambassador for the Arctic, Marianne Connex, and who now serves at the Egmont Institute in Belgium, and we're discussing the Arctic region. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, Ambassador Connex, what, what exactly is the Arctic Council? Uh, and what is the role of the council? Who are the members? The, who are observers? Uh, how is the leadership on the council organized? I have to imagine that as, a, as EU ambassador to the Arctic, that is the group with whom you worked the closest in that capacity. Is that right? Um, I will say what, what the Arctic Council is, but we work certainly very, very closely together, um, but not exclusively. And the reason is that Arctic matters are not, I would say, exclusively dealt with within the Arctic. If, for example, you take the International um, Maritime Organization, and I'm sure you know this very well, uh, they have also the polar code, so they have a lot of uh, rules and recommendations and cooperation with regarding to the Arctic. So it's not exclusive. And I would say that a big part of my task was also having relations uh, with other non-Arctic states, which are very active in the uh, as observers in the Arctic Council, doing, for example, official missions that I did to China, to Japan, um, to South Korea. So, I mean, there is more than the Arctic Council, but the Arctic Council is definitely the leading intergovernmental forum uh, that mainly promotes cooperation and coordination and interaction among the eight Arctic states and the indigenous people. Now, the eight Arctic states are the US, Canada, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark because of Greenland, and of course, Russia. And it has been established in 1998 in uh, in Canada with the Ottawa uh, Declaration. And I would say, and it's important to stress that its main task is dealing with issues of sustainable development and environmental protection in the Arctic. And important to stress that it does not deal uh, with security. This is ex exclu explicitly excluded from its mandate. So the composition of the Arctic Council, you have the Arctic states, they have territories within the Arctic. You have eight, you have six permanent participants representing the indigenous people in the Arctic. And this is really a unique feature of the Arctic Council that the indigenous people are sitting at the same table as the Arctic states. And then you have a big group of observers of the Arctic Council, which are non-Arctic states, which are also the European Union and a number of international organizations. Now, their task is mainly, I would say, to observe, to observe the work of the Arctic Council. And they are allowed to contribute to the work uh, and financing of the working groups. And I think that if you want to understand the importance of uh, the Arctic Council, it's very uh, important to look at the work of the working groups and the experts group of the Arctic Council. They have six working groups which are doing amazing work, very important work uh, covering fields like climate change, emergency response, 
to mental health and sustainable um, development. And their work has enabled to take policies decision based on a sound um, based scientific uh, finding, findings. And they also, which is an important element, they develop best practice and recommendations for, for example, safe shipping operations and sustainable operations um, in the Arctic, which then, if it's successful in one area, can be applied in another part of the, of the Arctic. Uh, regarding the chairmanship for the moment, uh, you have a chairmanship of the Arctic Council, uh, which is shared by an Arctic state and it's for a duration of two years. For the moment, Russia has the chairmanship of the Arctic Council until May of this year, but due to the invasion of the Ukraine, the work of the Arctic Council has been paused in March last year. Uh, which is absolutely the right decision which the Arctic 7 have been taken. But important to keep in mind that in May, upcoming May, Norway will take over the chairmanship. And then we are really curious to see how they will be handling Russia. That, that, is, that is a great point. Uh, we can't escape uh, the events of the world as we discuss even something as important as, uh, as the coordination, uh, the discussions, the research that, happen, that happens on the Arctic Council. I, I do have a quick follow-up question on this. I, I, did, I do do research on every show that I, uh, that I prepare, and I know that you've been yeah. a, a bit of an advocate for e expanding the number of observers on the Arctic Council. <laughs> uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? I would not say expanding, but uh, I am very much in favor uh, of uh, giving a more better role of observers in the Arctic Council to have a bigger engagement. It was one of the most frustrating functions I had was sitting two days on the back benches with my colleagues observers and just listening to discussions and not having any words uh, to say. And this there, I think, given the role of non-Arctic states, which is very important for the Arctic file as well. I think there should be, if you want to live in the 21st century, you have to do something also <laughs> to give a better say to these observers. If, for example, I want to give a few examples of the big role of uh, non-Arctic uh, state observers. Take the case of Germany. Uh, Germany is within the Europe, European Union, has the highest level of and the biggest research uh, budget. And they, for example, organize the very famous Mosaic expedition. You probably heard about it. This was uh, the biggest Arctic expedition uh, in history, whereby they had floating a, a polar um, a ship for one year in the Arctic, at which more than 100 nationalities researchers participated. Um, if I take the example of the Netherlands, the Netherlands is also an observer. They have an incredible expertise in water management. About 75 years ago, ago there was an enormous catastrophe in the Netherlands where the, uh, where the, the half of the country was flooded. There were thousands of, of dead people. So they have a water management, which with the rising of the sea level is becoming more important. Switzerland is an observer state of the Arctic Council. They have an incredible knowledge 
on glaciers. Uh, so, I mean, I can give you much more, but I don't want to stay within the one hour of this, this meeting. But just saying that we have something, the observers have something to offer, give them the possibility also to have a voice. Uh, so, Ambassador, you, you touched on a number of very important uh, dimensions to what the Arctic Council oversees through their deliberations, policy, research, uh, the cooperation. I want to cover those items uh, one at a time, but first I think it's important to understand uh, the most impactful thing that's happening in the Arctic region today, and, that, and that's climate change. Uh, you visited the Arctic when you were EU ambassador to Canada. I would imagine you probably visited the Arctic on many occasions while serving as the yeah. EU ambassador for the Arctic. What, what can you yeah. tell our listeners about the pace and impact of climate change on the Arctic region? I visited, I would say, the whole uh, Arctic uh, region. Maybe the only place I have not except uh, visited uh, yet is, is Greenland. Um, it's when I started as an EU ambassador for the Arctic, everybody was saying that the Arctic is warming up twice um, as fast as the rest of the world. Today, researchers and scientists are saying that the Arctic is warming up three to four times faster than the rest of, of the world. And this has uh, dramatic consequences for, for the Arctic itself and for its people. And also, which maybe is less known, it has a huge impact on the rest of the world. Now, I would like to say a few words very short about the latter impact, about the effects of warming up of the Arctic outside uh, the region. It's known that because of the warming up of the Arctic, the rest of the world is getting uh, warmer. So Arctic warming up accelerates global warming. It also causes extreme weather patterns all over the world. We had in recent years extreme cold waves, for example, in parts of the US, in Texas. You had extreme heat waves last year in Northern Europe. We had a huge increase of wildfires in Alaska and in Siberia for weeks. We had major flooding in parts of Europe last summer in Belgium and Germany were also hundreds of people died. You have an increase of level, sea levels because uh, the glaciers are, are melting. So there is, in brief, a major impact outside the Arctic because the warming up of the Arctic. But the impact of climate change in the Arctic is as dramatic. It impacts on, on the people, their livelihoods, societies, on local ecosystems, on the Arctic environment and the economy. A few examples on the impact, for example, on ecosystems. Snow and ice are melting at an incredible rate in the Arctic. And this is putting animals at risk, animals that are particularly ice dependent. By 2100, polar bears could face starvation, even in the far north of Canada. Also, most plants and animals in the Arctic tundra depend on favorable snow conditions to survive. So the Arctic impacts on Arctic uh, biodiversity. Another huge impact is, and a very worrying impact is uh, of the warming up, is permafrost. Permafrost is ground that has been permanently frozen often for decades. And a lot in the Arctic, uh, American Arctic, Russian Arctic, a lot of infrastructure 
is built on permafrost, such as roads and buildings and pipelines. And when the permafrost is thawing, these infrastructures are collapsing. And sometimes a road built upon permafrost is the only way to reach a community. So up to 50% of Arctic infrastructure could be at risk by 2050. Uh, an additional problem with permafrost is that it's key in storing carbon. And when permafrost melts, it releases enormous amounts quantities of CO2 and methane, which is very pollutant, adding to the climate crisis. Another impact in the Arctic is erosion of coast, particularly, I would say, in the American Arctic, uh, but not only, where the warming up is causing coastal erosion so that it forces communities to re relocate and going inland. Impact of the warming up is that it is creating economic opportunities, um, which of course can have positive but also negative effects. And as I said in the beginning, the impact of climate change is particularly dramatic for the people living in the Arctic. Now that's a, that's a great point. I think most people believe the Arctic is is barren of human uh, habitation, but that that's not really true. Uh, quite a few uh, human beings, different uh, ethnicities, uh, have have populated various areas across the Arctic region for for, for many centuries. Uh, those populations are all being uh, dramatically impacted by climate change uh, and the race to access uh, natural resources uh, because of climate change. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that, but I, I unfortunately I think we need to press on uh, with some additional questions here, and and maybe you can bring out some of the uh, the challenges that the the different uh, ethnic groups across the Arctic face as part of these uh, additional questions. The the opportunities that are opening up in the Arctic because of climate change. I, I, you know, we I don't I hate to say this is a silver lining uh, because there are some very negative impacts as a result of this, but oil and gas exploration. Uh, has been uh, pushed pretty hard. Is that a wise pursuit, uh, considering the harsh conditions of the Arctic? I mean, yes, we will have a lots of uh, melting of the permanent sea pack ice, but it does refreeze in the winter times. And even if uh, we get to a point with climate warming uh, that it is not a complete refreeze, you still have incredibly harsh winter uh, conditions up in the uh, the Arctic Ocean. Another topic is seabed mining. Maybe a little bit more of a smarter move, uh, especially if you only do it during the summer months. Uh, shipping lanes are certainly opening up uh, much of the summer and fall, and they may become a, a year-round opportunity as the climate continues to warm. Uh, that means reducing transit time from the coast of China to, to Europe and the eastern United States by as much as two weeks. Uh, that's billions of dollars uh, in savings uh, in logistics uh, and certainly in the just-in-time logistics approach. Uh, but that, of course, assumes that Europe and North America re remain economically connected to China, which is a completely different show. Uh, what are your thoughts on these economic opportunities in the Arctic? And, and maybe you could tie in the impacts on uh, on native uh, populations in the Arctic as a, as a part of this economic development. Okay, I, I would say that I'm very glad that you focus also on the people uh, of or the people in the Arctic, because uh, the Arctic is a region with 4 million people living there, about half of them in the Russian Arctic, and they are affected differently by Arctic, by climate change, as the Arctic regions are different. And that was most striking uh, when I visited all these regions. In the American Arctic, Alaska and Canada, it's 
mostly a huge area covered by ice and snow uh, where not much um, people and mostly indigenous people are living. Now, if you visit, for example, the European Arctic, including parts of the Russian Arctic, you have much more people, vibrant cities, communities, universities, industrial parks, and good connectivity. So there is not just one Arctic. And that means also that the impact of the climate change on the people in the Arctic is different a little bit where they are living. I would like maybe to, to focus on the economic activities and if this is an opportunity uh, or not. As you said, uh, the warming up offers new economic opportunities and the most important ones are that there are enormous, enormous quantities of natural resources in the Arctic, especially oil and gas. Most interesting, which has a huge potential of extraction, are key or rare earth minerals, um, because they are key to produce high-tech products such as electrical cars or iPhones. Uh, important in this regard for Europe is that we are enormously highly dependent on the import of these minerals, mainly from China. So we have uh, an interest of having more key minerals coming from the European Arctic, as this will reduce our dependency. You mentioned new shipping opportunities, uh, which especially with the opening of the Northern Sea Route will imply more rapid, shorter sea routes connecting Asia and, and Europe. So in, in brief, this will mean that what is to be expected in the near future and happening already is more drilling, more mining, more shipping and more fishing in, in the Arctic. Now, what about the impact? Uh, of it. Is this a good thing uh, or, or not? Can it be justified to have these economic activities in the Arctic given that it's very fragile environment or should it be forbidden? Now, the answer of the European Union is, is the following and it's quite simple. Yes, economic development in the Arctic must be possible because also it's what the people living in the Arctic want. But, and a big but, it has to be done in a sustainable way. And it can be done in a sustainable way. We have many examples in the European Arctic with green energy, green steel, which is being produced, circular economy. And key here is to use innovative technologies that enable sustainable production. Uh, whatever, uh, wh where, what we uh, actually are opposing are new, new explorations of fossil fuels in the Arctic, new exploration of oil and gas, which is also the position of the United Nations and of the International um, Energy um, Agency. And a final word uh, on it is the impact on the indigenous uh, people. They welcome this, I would say, new economic opportunities, but sometimes it has negative consequences. And I just want to give you uh, an example uh, in the European Arctic. For the moment, onshore wind power is a very controversial topic in both Norway and Sweden, as wind farms are often placed on land used by the indigenous, the Sami, for reindeer herding. Mm. And according to the Sami, these wind parks affect negatively the places where reindeer can, can, graze, can, can graze. So there is a kind of, you know, 
difficulty, we have to take into account also the position of uh, the indigenous people, of the people living in the Arctic, even if everybody will have to adapt. Those are great points. Uh, for our audience, we're going to take just a, a short break uh, to recognize our sponsor for this show, uh, the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back. Uh, our guest today is Ambassador uh, Marianne Connings from the uh, Egmont Institute. And we're talking about the Arctic and uh, related issues. Uh, so, Ambassador, your, your work at the Egmont Institute involves sometimes, well, regularly involves, I would imagine, security studies. Uh, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss that aspect of the Arctic on our show today. Uh, Russia fully understands the value the Arctic region offers uh, from an economic standpoint, uh, and Russia also believes they need to secure those claims using their military. Uh, they now have uh, six bases, uh, Army bases, 14 airfields, 16 deep water ports, and 14 new icebreakers that have been built to help them uh, dominate the Arctic geography. Uh, they possess the ability to dominate in capability and infrastructure, and some of their icebreakers are even armed with cruise missiles. Uh, under the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea, Russia has legitimate sovereign interests, and they have elevated their northern fleet to become uh, its own military district, much like a U.S. combatant command in, here in the U.S. military. Russia maintains and has improved on a protective bastion for its ballistic missile submarines that carry submarine-launched uh, nuclear missiles, part of Russia's uh, strategic deterrence uh, efforts. They have an active defense system that has high readiness, high mobility, and lots of firepower in the northern fleet. They also have strong anti-access and access denial capability that reaches from the Arctic to the Baltic to the Greenland-Iceland-UK gap, or the GIUK gap. Uh, bottom line, Russia has militarized the Arctic region to a significant extent. Uh, what, what do Russia's actions in this regard mean to you as someone who's an expert in international relations, someone who's an experienced diplomat, and someone deeply familiar with and knowledgeable about the Arctic? Thank you, John. I always had a particular interest in the security aspects uh, of the Arctic uh, file, which has become even more prominent uh, today. Indeed, Russia has uh, increased substantially its military presence in, in the Arctic. Uh, for Russia, the Arctic remains absolutely their number one strategic priority, their strategic security priority. And this is confirmed, uh, what you definitely know, uh, John, in Russia's new maritime doctrine of uh, last year, July 2022, uh, where Russia considers the Arctic as an area of strategic confrontation between Russia, the US and its allies. And this doctrine explains that the Arctic has turned into a region of global military and economic competition and it only reinforces that competition and tensions will increase to rise in uh, the Arctic. Already before Russia invaded Ukraine, especially after at the Crimea in 2014. Russia has been building 
considerably its military capabilities in the Arctic. And, and John, you gave a very good overview uh, of it. And since then, I would say Russia has become more aggressive. And we can only expect that Russia will reinforce its military security focus. Now, what does this mean for the European Union? Uh, should be we more concerned with the region's security? And my answer is definitely yes. It's obvious that the European Arctic is particularly vulnerable to Russian military strategies. The more tense the situation between NATO and Russia becomes, the more tense tension will spread to the northern part of the European Union. If you look at the map, the European Arctic is one of four regions where Europe meets Russia, the other being Baltic Sea, Black Sea, and Ukraine, Belarus. And there is no reason that to treat the European Arctic different from the other three adjacent regions in terms of security. So there is a real need for the European Union to recognize that Russia in the Arctic is a security threat for the European Union. And European security architecture is evolving after years of stability. And especially, I would say, with the hopefully NATO accession of Sweden and Finland, the center of regional security is moving northwards. So in looking at EU policy in this regard, our updated version of October 21, security got a more prominent place. I pushed for it, but it's definitely uh, not enough. But in any case, what will be key for the security of the Arctic is certainly application of Sweden and Finland to become member of NATO. So that the, the, the applications for, for both Sweden and Finland to join NATO, uh, that's separate and distinct, obviously, from the role they play in the European Union. And uh, from, a, from an EU perspective, uh, Finland has a, about an 850-mile, uh, that's in U.S. terms, uh, border. 1,300 right, <laughs> kilometers. That's right, right yes. along with Russia. Uh, and a lot of that mm -hmm. is in the Arctic Circle. Uh, that has got to be a challenge from an EU security perspective uh, with regards to Russian behavior in, in the high north. Uh, could you say a little bit more about uh, fin Finland and Sweden's role, not, not just in the EU, but how that might change the balance of power if, when and if they're finally accepted into the NATO alliance? Yeah, uh, I think that the application of Sweden and Finland to NATO uh, after that Russia in invaded uh, Ukraine uh, was absolutely uh, the right decision. And uh, I have been closely following these discussions in both, both countries. And I would say this decision to apply was absolutely not, not evident because both uh, have rather a neutrality tradition. And uh, I would say that dramatically what changed uh, was when Russia invaded Ukraine uh, in February last year, 22. And I think that uh, they, they had to apply to join NATO and to strengthen also their uh, own uh, security. And I was 
uh, watching a discussion with the head of the Finnish army, a fourth staff general the other day, and he said Russia recognizes only hard power and not uh, soft power. And it has to be uh, known that Finland all these years uh, has never diminished uh, its, I would say, its military uh, deterrence in Finland itself. They are trained, uh, trained for it, but definitely their membership will reinforce NATO. Uh, it will also imply that you have seven uh, members of the Arctic Council out of eight uh, will be members of, of, of NATO. And um, this particularly, uh, I would say, will uh, reinforce the European part uh, of NATO, which uh, I think NATO has been in the past neglecting the Arctic, uh, the European Arctic region, and therefore their membership is absolutely key uh, for uh, Arctic security. Mm. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is former European Union Ambassador for the Arctic, Marianne Connicks, who now serves at the Egmont Institute in Belgium, and we're discussing the Arctic region. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, Ambassador, we're getting into our fourth uh, segment here uh, on the show. Uh, I'd like to move over to uh, to China, China's role in, in, uh, in the Arctic a bit. China seeks to influence uh, policy and activity in the Arctic region. Uh, they've been seeking mining concessions in Greenland. And if they get these mining opportunities, it would put them astride some of the sea lanes they wish to use regularly to bring goods to market in Europe and in North America, while also bringing natural resources back to support the economic engine in China. How does the EU view Chinese actions in the region? Is this a concern or is it just a function of global economic development? I would say that uh, China uh, remains definitely uh, what I call a, a wild car cut uh, regarding uh, the Arctic. Um, on on the one hand, um, the interest of China in the Arctic is economically uh, driven and is definitely not necessarily a bad thing. Um, as we discussed before, the Arctic has. Uh, enormous economic potential and huge national resources, including critical minerals. And all this is of huge interest for China. China needs these resources. Uh, also of high economic interest for China is the Northern Sea Route, uh, as it's a shortened sea route connecting uh, Asia with Europe. And China is already involved in investments, for example, it has been investing in LNG terminals in the Yamal, in Russian uh, Arctic, along the Northern Sea Route, and it is interested in investing in critical infrastructure in the Arctic, for example, interested in investing in an airport or in critical minerals in Greenland. Mm. So there are certainly economic activities and investment taking place by China in the Arctic, which not in C, uh, per definition, is a bad thing as long as China respects the game of the rules and respects <laughs> international law, uh, law and does it in a sustainable way. But on the other hand, we also need China for cooperation, uh, for example, on issues like climate change, 
Also, China is heavily affected by the warming up of the Arctic in China. They're doing enormous amount of Arctic research. So we need the cooperation of China to addressing climate change in general. Uh, but I repeat, uh, China is a wild card regarding the Arctic, mainly because I would say of two regions, uh, reasons. It's possible alliance, question mark, with Russia regarding Ukraine. It's uncertain. Also uncertain is whether China will get involved in Arctic military in future. China is already building nuclear icebreakers and developing new generation missiles. So on this show, we spend a, a good deal of time considering the security ramifications of, uh, of global events. Uh, I, I'd like to actually close out this topic on the Arctic by talking about, talking about some of the good things that are happening in the region. Uh, from my perspective, and, and you've brought this out uh, in your discussions about the Arctic Council, uh, that includes a growing respect for indigenous rights and protection of indigenous cultures. Uh, it, it includes the scientific exploration that's happening in the Arctic and the international cooperation on safety at sea. Uh, many nations already cooperate quite well on the emergency response for ships and aircraft that find themselves in trouble. Uh, could you talk a little bit about these more positive aspects uh, of what's happening up in the Arctic for just a bit? Yeah, definitely. We spoke a lot about uh, bad things or challenges or <laughs> problems, uh, but there are definitely a lot of good things happening in, in the Arctic, which struck me. I said I had a very interesting career, but the, the most uh, fascinating function I had in my 35 years career as an EU diplomat has been to be an uh, EU ambassador uh, for uh, the Arctic because uh, there existing something like a an Arctic family, and I have been embraced immediately uh, by, by the others. Also unique for the Arctic, which you will not find easily elsewhere, there is something which is called an Arctic spirit. Arctic spirit meaning focusing more on cooperation than on, on confrontation. And this cooperation is particularly strong. You gave some examples, international cooperation in the field of science and research, good cooperation on maritime issues, for example, on safety and emergency re re response. And even, I have to mention that before Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, the relation with the EU, with Russia, was very bad. Uh, but there were some exceptions. And one exception was working together on the Arctic file. And one of my first missions I did when I became EU Arctic ambassador, was to Russia, and it was very. It went very well. But unfortunately, uh, Russia now has been crossed all red lines, all cooperation, including on the Arctic, and uh, cooperation with them is impossible. But last word, finally, extremely positive uh, experience and a development is a quite recent development. Is the growing respect for indigenous people, uh, for their rights and for their culture. They have a strong voice, it must be heard. Also the voice of youth in the Arctic is getting stronger, which is very positive. So the people of the Arctic, I would say, are absolutely the richest resources in the Arctic. Uh, Ambassador Konigsby, I want to finish our discussion today by, by further considering Russia and their choice to invade Ukraine. I would imagine you work closely with Russian diplomats, scientists, and others in your role as EU ambassador for the Arctic. Uh, as a citizen of the European Union, uh, and as a diplomat, a former diplomat, as a researcher uh, at the Egmont Institute, 
What do you make of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? How, how committed are Europe, European governments to backing Ukraine with as much aid as can be given to stop Russia? And, and what possible outcomes do you see as a, as a career diplomat uh, for this war? Thank you, John. I think I can be very short on that. With invading Ukraine, Russia crossed all red lines. Russia viola- violated all basic rules and principles of international law, violating sovereign rights of a country, and in the meantime is committing war crimes. Totally unacceptable. And the European Union from the start, like the US, stands firmly with Ukraine and its brave people. We we supporting and continue to strongly support the Ukraine with all possible means. We support Ukrainian economy, society, its armed forces. We have been providing more than 3.6 billion euro to date in military assistance. We support Ukrainian refugees and support future reconstruction. And when this terrible war is over, Ukraine will become a member of the European Union. And finally, there is only one possible, one acceptable outcome of this war. Russia has to withdraw from Ukraine. Russia must leave Ukraine. It's hard to believe we're we're sort of closing in on the end of our show for this week. Uh, We only have about eight minutes left every week. It just goes by so quickly. I'd like to give I'd like to give my guests sort of the final word on the show on the, on the core topic that we're talking about today. It's the Arctic region. Uh, I don't know if people know this, but some ninety percent of global trade travels across the world's oceans, and that's actually expected to double over the next two decades. Uh, the Arctic Ocean itself, uh, because of uh, climate change and opening up the sea lanes, has the potential to connect over seventy five percent of the world's population. As uh, the melting ice opens up uh, timelier maritime trade routes between North America, Europe, and Asia, uh, you, you have deep familiarity with the Arctic. You, you've demonstrated that all, all throughout our whole show. What, what else would you like listeners to know and understand about the importance of the Arctic region to life on Earth or to the global economy or global security concerns? Uh, the, the floor is yours, Ambassador. Thank you, John. I, I would say that the Arctic is not only local; the Arctic is definitely also global. What means that what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic and it has impact all over the world, in Europe, in the US, in Minnesota, in all aspects, security, economy. And therefore, it's in the interest of us all to care about the Arctic, which is not only in the interest of the Arctic and its people, but also in our own interest. Uh, Ambassador uh, Marianne Connex, uh, could you please remind our listeners of your personal website so people can look up your many published articles and learn more about your career on this topic of the Arctic? Well, my uh, website, which was has been a present of my husband, by the way, uh, <laughs> is the following: uh, www. Marianne. It's M A R I E A N N E dash Connex C. O-N-I-N-S-X dot A-U. I can repeat, www.maryann-kunings dot A-U. Are there any other resources on the Arctic region that you would suggest for our listeners so they can learn more about the Arctic? Maybe the Arctic Council website or, or other things? 
definitely. Uh, there are many, many uh, sources uh, to, to, that, that they can uh, consult. I definitely would recommend to visit uh, the website of the Arctic Council, and particularly if you then go into more details in the work of the working groups of the Arctic Council in the different fields, it's really, really impressive. But then you have also other websites, for example, in the US, recommend to go to the website of the Arctic Institute of the Wilson uh, Center. They also have uh, very, very interesting research and articles which they publish regularly. And then uh, regarding the European Union, uh, visit the website of the European Commission for all matters uh, regarding uh, the European Union, its international policies, and including its policies on the Arctic. And you currently serve as a senior associate fellow at the Egmont Institute. Uh, could you tell our listeners about the Egmont Institute's uh, website so they can take a look at that uh, organization as well? Definitely. Uh, the website of Egmont is www.egmontinstitute.be. And Egmont is E-G-M-O-N-T-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E. All right. Dot B-E. So I hope it's clear. <laughs> it is. Yep, Absolutely. Uh, I'm former EU ambassador to the Arctic and uh, also to Canada and Mexico. Uh, Marianne Connix is currently a senior fellow at the Egmont Institute in Belgium. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great discussion. Thank you, John. Also, I enjoyed it very, very much. You have given me a unique opportunity to address listeners in uh, Minnesota, and I really uh, enjoyed it and wishing you all the very best. Thank you. Thank you so much. That closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.